Hello, I'm Paula Jenkins, a transformative life coach and retreat leader. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, a podcast that talks about the stories of people following their hearts, finding work that lights them up, and looking at how joy plays a part in their journey. To learn more about this podcast, head on over to jumpstartyourjoy.com. And if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website at paulajenkinsonline.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 21 of Jumpstart Your Joy. First, a huge thank you. Last week's episode 20 with Danny Wood was just such an amazing experience. And I want to give a heartfelt thanks to all of you who tweeted and wrote comments and shared and commented on Instagram. It was just a real honor to be a part of all that and to get to speak with Danny himself. So thank you guys so much. If you didn't get to listen to that episode, go on back to jumpstartyourjoy.com slash Danny Wood and take a listen because it really is a heartwarming interview with, of course, someone from the new kids on the block. There was also so much to love about that episode. I want to thank those of you who went over and gave a review on iTunes because last week this little podcast was sitting right there at number 82 on personal journals out of all the podcasts on iTunes sitting right next to John Tesh. So today on the podcast, we have an interview with Liz Ross. She is the CEO of Periscope, which is an ad agency out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. We talk about heart-centered leadership and the importance of valuing people that work for her in what can be a very competitive and sometimes difficult environment. If you want to follow along with this episode, you can go over to the show notes and you'll find those at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash Liz Ross, R-O-S-S is how you spell her last name. And on that page, you'll find the links and information about this episode. And if you have not yet subscribed, you can go over to iTunes and get this automatically delivered to your iPhone or other device each week as a new episode comes out. And if you'd leave a review, I would be just so grateful. And so without further ado, I bring to you the interview with Liz Ross. Welcome to the show, Liz. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yay! I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Do you want to explain a little bit about what you do and who you are? Sure, sure, sure. So I am about 45 days in to this new job at Periscope. And, you know, my sort of background has always been in creative, but I've spent my entire career on the agency side. And Periscope came up as an opportunity after I had left media brands and is really this pretty unbelievably diverse, creatively driven organization based in Minneapolis. Uh, We're a 500 person agency and have capabilities in things like packaging and retail and in-store marketing and advertising and social and media that is this really diverse set of capabilities underneath one roof. Very cool. Just a pretty amazing, pretty amazing idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool because it is kind of unusual in this day and age to have an agency that does all of that under one roof. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right. And particularly with sort of the domination of the holding company structure has really forced agencies apart, if you will, in order to maintain their the structure and the integrity of them within a holding structure. So this is an independently held agency, which is also extraordinarily rare today. 
Yeah, super cool. Yeah, just I don't know that the audience even knows that I have done many years <laughs> in the ad agency world and and loved it very much. And yeah, it, just looking at that, you're right. Conglomerates or big holding companies are kind of the norm anymore. And then when you get at the brand level, you'll see big brands have separate agencies for stuff like digital and packaging. Like they literally would work with 10 to 12 different agencies and that's not unusual. So That's exactly right. That's exactly just, right. Just for a little context in case people are like, what? <laughs> I thought like some not that you work with Pepsi, but I thought like Pepsi, they only work with one agency or whatever. No, no, many, many, many. Yeah, it's unusual. So as a child... What were your early sparks of joy? So I really, as a child and even today, but I was an avid reader and I saw a great quote recently that reading is dreaming with your eyes open. Mm, and I just, <laughs> uh, just really a, a wonderful sentiment of sort of experiencing lots of different stories and people and and as a child was just a was a huge reader and also was always pretty creative. I mean, I'm the daughter of an artist and a computer programmer. And so, you know, really was inspired to to do creative things, but creativity not just sort of painting and drawing and things that actually I'm not very good at, but things that were sort of creative in nature. So as a kid, my dad believed that we, in order to play video games, we should understand how they were put together. And so he taught us, you know, sort of early basic programming and sort of simple if-then stuff. But what it did was really spur, you know, spur sort of our ability to think about what creativity was. And you know, for me personally, it was just really exciting to see something that you built come to life. Oh my gosh, that's, I don't know if we've ever talked about that before. But yeah, I took basic <laughs> too, and do, you know, and had to understand DOS and all that. I think that there is a really interesting through line with like then understanding the logic maybe behind creativity. That's exactly right. It really is about you know the creation of things and the connections of different disparate sort of pieces of information together in order to create something different. Very cool. That's so exciting. And then seeing that that fits really nicely into advertising and marketing, because it really, it is, there's a lot of science behind what you're doing. <laughs> right. It's, it's really the, just a tremendous blend of art and science. And, you know, my parents certainly weren't planning to raise an advertising executive, but they sort of had the perfect blend of those two things, which really led to me being able to both develop into a career that leveraged both of those sides, but really to be, you know, able to take advantage of the early days of, of digital marketing back in the mid 90s and really understand what the potential was there uh, long before it was recognized commercially. And isn't that so interesting? Because I think we're within a few months of the same age. And there was, I don't know, let's talk about that age a little, not our age, but <laughs> the age of like the upcoming internet. And I don't know, but it seemed like there were groups of people that understood in, inherently that it, I mean, it's laughable to say now that it was the next big thing, but like, I don't know, what was it like digging in and being there? And I'll give background too, that like I was at a little company, a startup called Quokka Sports, where, I mean, we were playing with content and like creation of stuff on the internet, but also realizing really early on that if you didn't have a brand sponsoring some of it, you weren't going to get far money wise. I don't know what was your experience kind of in that day and age. You know, for me, I was working at a big traditional agency, J. Walter Thompson, and I started seeing these companies pop up like Amazon and Netscape. And, you know, I said to the man, 
management at the time, we should be advertising them. Like those companies are going to, ru- you know, they're going to run the world. <laughs> now, I was wrong about Netscape, but <laughs> I was certainly right about Amazon. And the idea was that there were these sort of transformative things happening. And, you know, advertising was very much on the sidelines. So, you know, my point was, let's be a part of building these brands. And, you know, certainly in some cases, those brands needed it. And certainly in a case like Google, they did not. And so that was, you know, but again, in those early days of trying to, I worked on the first online advertising campaign Dell had ever done. And just trying to sort of talk to Dell about what it meant to do banners and what they should look like and where they should go. And so it was, you know, those early, early days of promising companies that this wasn't a fad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. I have memories of that with like GE and I don't know. There were a bunch of others that advertised in the Sydney Olympics. That <laughs> Absolutely. So your current role is CEO. I don't know if you want to explain a little bit more about the background or other pivotal roles that you played getting to this point. Sure. So, you know, my my job has primarily, even from my earliest days, I've been involved in business development, which in our space means going out and finding new clients and sort of being the you know, the voice of what's coming next, if you will, and being able to put that into a coherent vision for companies that then facilitates their switch to, you know, the agency that I'm working at. And so that had really prepared me for starting to move into management. And it really was when I joined Tribal DDB, which is where you and I crossed paths, that I really began to sort of build out my capabilities from a management standpoint, not just growth. And so starting to really layer in sort of how you build an agency. When I joined, it was two people and we had a client that was pretty close to walking out the door to developing it into a really robust organization and office and then broadening that to include other offices and growth. So that, from a management standpoint, sort of set the groundwork for me. And after I left Tribal, I actually went back and was doing sort of just core business development activities. But the truth is that I think I'm happiest when I'm involved in growth, but also really directing where the company is going. So for me, it, it comes down to I'm bossy, which I own and, and sort of appreciate. But I also I want to be able to set the direction. I don't like just sort of doing growth while other people set the direction. I have to have a seat at that table. And so this opportunity from a leadership standpoint really felt like uh, just such an incredible opportunity with a really incredible group of people to see if I could both help grow it, but also expand my own leadership capabilities. Yeah, that's a really cool opportunity. Well, and it's funny that you say bossy. (laughs) Well, and you own it, so I love that. But like, I think there's something way beyond, having seen you in action, there's something way beyond that. Yes, you're clear and direct, but I think, and one of the reasons I reached out was around heartfelt leadership. I don't know. Do you want to explain? I get the sense, though, that you really do follow either intuition or gut and you really care about the people that report to you. And so that's what I mean by heartfelt leadership. But yeah, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about those pieces? Because I think it's very, just from an aside, it's very unusual in this day and age to see the blend of <laughs> both bossy, <laughs> if you will, and, and heartfelt. <laughs> Well, thank you. And I think, you know, the truth of advertising is that it's a people-based business, right? So we don't have factories, we don't have trucks, we don't have supply lines. So if people are not happy or your people don't feel like they're doing something important, then nothing remarkable can get done, right? It doesn't matter. There's no factory line to push harder, operationalize differently. So for me, I think I understood 
from an early age, actually, the importance of people in general and the people around me. And, you know, my belief is never that I'm the smartest person in the room. And, you know, I love the Bill Gates quote that, you know, A players hire A players and B players hire C players. So I've always attempted to hire people that are smarter and better than me and then tried to make sure that I was part of creating an environment that allowed those people to really thrive and allowed people to, you know, do what they do best. And with all of our individual characteristics and quirks, of which we all have many. And, you know, it's true for me, too. I mean, I want to work in a place where I feel like people genuinely care about each other and and that being a person is as important as being an employee, if not more important. And that when we lose sight of that, you know, we've lost something about ourselves. And I think you know, for, is it really, you know, heartfelt leadership is a, is a wonderful way to put it, but it's also a selfish thing. I mean, I want that too, right? I want to be in a place where even when I was interviewing, I said, you know, I want to be in a place where people ask me about my son mm-hmm. and not because I want to talk about it all day long, but because it's, a, it's an extraordinarily large part of who I am. And so if I have to dissect who I am as a person from who I am as an employee, then I'm never going to be happy. So that's sort of been the philosophy with which I've operated. And certainly I've succeeded in places, I've failed in places, you know, anytime, you know, somebody has to be let go, or somebody leaves, you know, I've always considered it a failure of mine. Because the truth is that, you know, if you know, somebody is being let go, then I haven't done a good job of sort of helping to manage them or set expectations. And, you know, perhaps there was an ex- a feeling as if organization or me that didn't care enough. And I think that that's something companies devalue, but it's actually something extraordinarily important. Yeah, it really is. And I know working on a team or, you know, working for you, (laughs) there was that sense that you were so personally, I don't want to say invested, like over invested, but you had so much interest in what each of us had going on that then the hallway conversations became really natural. And like, it was fun to share what we were doing across the board with everyone. But like, by example, you were showing us how it could be in a workplace, which was refreshing. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that that's the right, it's the right model, right? Because mm-hmm. we're all people first. And a, particularly if you look at where we are economically, even as a country, or I mean, if you look globally, you know, we're moving into the sort of domination of service-based businesses, which are all driven by people. And so particularly in the West, the move away from core manufacturing means that the rise of the employee and the importance of people should and will continue to become increasingly important. And companies that miss that or devalue it or think of it as a department, right? You have an employee engagement department have missed the point. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Deep. I hadn't even thought about the manufacturing piece. Like just, wow, of course that is true. Would you say that having your son, did that amplify your desire for that kind of merging of the two, both work and life, balance and work? What would you call yeah. it? Like being yourself at work. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I mean, I think I'd always been true to it. I mean, I'm, I had my son sort of late in my life as, as a comparatively, and am today pregnant with twin girls and, you know, have the sort of 
Thank you. Thank you. It's very, very insane. But, you know, have the perspective on both the importance of a, a strong career and a really vibrant work life, but also the importance of sort of having a, a life that's worth living. So I sort of come at it from both angles in a way that I think, you know, again, might be might be more unusual and is perhaps sort of one of the outcomes of being an older mom. But I think that my desire was certainly amplified to be the whole me after I had my son, but certainly I, I don't think I missed it even before I was a parent. And in fact, I had somebody come to me recently and ask about work-life balance for parents and wanting to do more for parents and moms. And I said, actually, that I don't believe, I actually don't believe that companies should be thinking of work-life balance for parents. I think companies should be thinking about it for people because certainly before I had children, I wouldn't have said that my life was less important than somebody that did. Yeah. And that's a really strong and big thing to notice because, I mean, I remember I mean, now I'm a married lady with a five-year-old and also, I mean, had my son when I was 38. So there was that later in life momhood thing. But I remember looking back, not necessarily at tribal, but other places where it was very apparent that people with kids were, I'm going to use air quotes, allowed to leave early. Like they kind of, yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there was that, there was an almost an us and them thing going on. So I love what you've just said about it being aimed at people, not just parents, kind of like a trajectory. Agreed, because I mean, I think if you look at people that don't have children, they certainly have made other choices. They're caring for aging parents. They might have pets. Like there there really has to be this sense of both what an employee is willing to contribute or give to an organization and what the organization gives back. But it can't just be dictated based on whether or not you're a parent, because I think lives are big and complicated whether or not you have children or not. Yes, I think that's really also an exceptional thing to recognize and maybe not as, as common as it should be. Right. I know from having worked at Tribal that you also had this really intuitive and great understanding of what it takes to lead a team. And for, I guess for audience as well, like team is big when you're in advertising, maybe even more so. It's not the same really as a department. You guys really, I mean, people really have to be functioning in a cohesive way and anything that comes up that's uncomfortable I mean you really have to work through it because you're working long hours really closely like hip to hip with people on projects what do you feel makes a, a great leader you know I think it comes down to sort of two things I think it, it comes down to transparency and accountability and information in any sort of team based environment is power and so when it is kept from people it automatically changes the power dynamic on a team. And so information has to flow quickly in all directions so that nobody's sort of holding a power position over anyone else. And I think the second part of that is with information and knowledge comes accountability. So the notion of you have to do what you say you're going to do. And to your point, you know, you're working hip to hip. If you don't sort of deliver against what you've promised, you're letting down an entire group of people. And there's a meme on Facebook that occasionally comes up that always makes me laugh really hard, which is, you know, I'm going to have my team be the pallbearers at my funeral so they can let me down one last time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, I laugh at it every time, but I think the truth is accountability to one another. It's not about the company. It's not about the project because those things are hard to feel emotionally invested in. It's about being accountable to the people that you work with every day. So I think it's that. I think it's the sort of expect, you know, having high expectations and being excited by what you're doing and, and hoping that everybody kind of feels that same way. And how, 
as a leader, if you had a, a piece of advice or a suggestion, how does a leader instill that in a team? I think it comes from a couple of places, but I think it comes from everybody feeling like you're doing something important. And if you feel like you're working on something that doesn't matter, it's easy to dismiss it, right? It's easy to just want to ignore it or pretend like it's not happening. So I think the notion of purpose is critically important on anything, anything that anyone's working on. And, you know, the notion of, of expectations is also important. So when everyone's clear on what it means to deliver and to deliver well, you know, nine out of 10 times people will, will deliver against it. My husband's favorite phrase is that people are good. You know, at the end of the day, people want to do things that make other people happy. We're herd animals. We're not trying to hurt other people. And so when the expectations are clear, I think people are comfortable that they know what they need to do in order to deliver. Totally agree. And I think that goes back to, I mean, obviously it does, but with the transparency and accountability piece, because when you really know your team is functioning at the same level you are and you can count on them, then the camaraderie starts, right? Like... (laughs) Totally, because then you're, you know, you're you're vested, and the last thing you want to be is the person that didn't deliver. And everybody at some point is not going to be able to deliver. And the key is to be able to say to your team, "I'm so sorry, I wasn't able to deliver, and it won't happen again." And and that's the transparency part too, right? Which is you don't sweep it under the rug or ignore it or hide it. You say, you address it and say, "It's not my intent." and I have this going on or this family issue and, you know, I'll make it better next time. And I think that that's the other sort of with transparency, the sort of link is also honesty. Totally. Right. Because, I mean, obviously, most people have probably seen the flip of it where all those opposites start to come into play. where Everyone's hiding what they're doing and and fear takes over. And that's a. Uh, That's a dangerous team to be on. That's exactly right. I know you always made a point to share portions of your life with our whole team. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention this part, but there there was some hilarious thing where you shared a Facebook update. (laughs) (laughs) I I think a relationship status or something. Hopefully that's not inappropriate to bring up. But like, yeah, no. You said, hey, you guys, I know this just went up on Facebook. And and all of us were like, oh, yeah, we saw it. But like you quickly addressed what it was. Sharing this part of yourself seems to be genuine to who you are. And I don't know, is that something you grew into in as a leader or just something that came naturally out of who you've always been? You know, I think it's pretty natural, I think. But at the same time, I mean, the situation you addressed is fine to bring up. And it was, you know, changing a relationship status on Facebook and then realizing that it was a public announcement that had gone out when I thought it was just a change privately. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I think there is a need for leaders to be human, right, to be honest and the last couple of days, you know, I'm in the process of moving to Minneapolis and I'm pregnant and I have a two-year-old and I'm selling a house and I'm buying a house. And so there's lots and lots and lots of stress. And, you know, last week I just said to my team, I'm just having a really bad day. Just having a really bad day. And I think the point of it is not to say, hey, to overshare, make people feel uncomfortable, but just to say, here's what's going on with me in a way that just sort of lets them know where I'm at or the day that you mentioned. I mean, it was funny and it was was overwhelming the number of people that commented on it on Facebook. And I just think addressing that stuff is good, right? It's just, (laughs) hey, here's what's happening. And, you know, that one happened to be particularly amusing. But the, the good and the bad, I think... Is, is important to share. And I think it's pretty natural to me, but I had to also sort of grow comfortable with it, which helps me when I feel comfortable in a team. Mm-hmm. And I've been in workplaces where I don't feel comfortable 
And I've been in on teams where I don't feel valued or I don't feel a part of it. And in those situations, I don't share anything. So it yeah. really does come out of, it comes out of that comfort and camaraderie that we talked about before in terms of how you build the team. And when you don't have that, it, it becomes really difficult because you have to sort of divorce yourself from who you are as a person with who you are as an employee, which I just don't think is, is good for anybody. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. It's interesting. My my little phrase for the last for 2015 was no toggle, which in a, yeah, yeah. a nutshell or whatever was just like don't be someone. Or I guess the positive would it be something like always be the same person at work, you know, as much as you can be, but like aim to be that same person privately and at work and anywhere else. And it was really interesting how that played out. Because I think there's also what I jokingly say the George Costanza of you know he had two worlds and they should never collide. <laughs> Yeah, I think so many of us get into that. And, you know, and I think the truth is when you even talk about work-life balance, anybody that's sort of longing for the days where you clock in at eight and you clock out at five isn't being honest about where we are because we all surf Facebook during the day. I mean, Facebook's, you know, traffic statistics indicate that, you know, some of the highest traffic is in the middle of the day. We shop during the middle of the day. We converse with our spouses or friends or do things so It isn't as if we're working from eight to five, right? But it also means that, you know, people go home at night and give their kids baths and put them to bed and get back online and answer email. And so that merger, that meshing is the truth of where we are today. And so to your question about the world's colliding, they already have. They already have. So the more honest we are about that, I think the better off and happier we will be. Yeah. Sorry, George Costanza. (laughs) You're out of luck. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. We'll change gears a little bit. But if somebody's looking for a new job, and I'll admit I was kind of in this position like two years ago, but like I wanted to find a place where I was valued and heard. I don't know. Do you have any suggestions if somebody's in that space right now? What questions do you ask someone that you're trying to you know, get a job at this place if they are a company like the one or have a team like the one that you lead? This is the toughest one, and I will admit to not doing this well even myself and making some choices that were perhaps less than ideal professionally than I would have wished. But I think the key is, and I say this to people that are are job hunting, is to look for great people first. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to sort of get away from the marquee, the bright marquee of a name or a company that you've admired and really look and say, is this a person and a team that I'm going to feel good about? And we tend to ignore some of the signals sometimes when we're interviewing because when we're interviewing or looking for a job, we're spending so much time selling ourselves that we forget that it's also an opportunity for the company to sell us. And so being able to step back and sort of critically analyzing and say, is this a place that I feel like I'm going to like these people? And my barometer, and again, caveating that I haven't always done this well, is to say, do I want to go to dinner with this person? Mm-hmm. And, you know, would I have Thanksgiving with this person if I was snowed in? And the truth is, if the answer is no, then I have to take a really hard look at that because it really does come down to people and and an organization that has a culture where you're heard and valued and will permeate and you'll feel it in the interview process. 
or you won't. Mm -hmm. And even companies that have sort of reputation of those cultures will have pockets where it doesn't exist. And so you have to take a hard look at the people. And if you're interviewing at a company where you love the leader, right, but you don't see it in the teams that you're interviewing in or the organization, it's worth saying to that leader, why doesn't this feel like it's permeating? Because the organization may be in some kind of transition, there may be, you know, situations where, you know, the leader is changing the organization and it hasn't come all the way through. And that's, that's also a good thing to know. But I think, you know, the headline is look for great people. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. And I ask just because you've led great teams. So I would think that in searching to find teams like that and a heartfelt team that kind of has their, they're a little more intuitive with things. Like I think asking the right question and feeling, following your gut is probably, that's awesome as well. What are three ways you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Wow, that's a great question, and I will caveat by saying I didn't skip ahead. We've, we've talked about a bunch of them, but I, I think it is about not segmenting your life is number one. So who you are as a parent or a human being should as much as possible coexist with who you are in your professional life so that you make sure that you sort of live one life. We all sort of, depending on what you believe, you get one crack at this thing. And I think the more sort of holistic you are about your approach and who you are, the healthier and happier you will be. So that's number one. I think number two is making sure that you always operate with purpose. And really, this is about sort of purpose for yourself or your family. You don't let things sort of wash over you, if you will, is that you're, you're being deliberate. And you're making choices every day and you're deliberate about those choices. So whether it's what job do you take or what city do you live in down to do you eat something terrible or do you eat something healthy? Everything is a choice. Everything is a choice and has has those ramifications. And as long as you're deliberate about it, you can own it, whether you're going through a phase where you're eating terribly or you're not or you're you know you make a professional decision that you later regret it's okay and the the truth is you can't make any mistakes but you do have to be purposeful about your choices and what you're doing and then I think the last one is to really we we talked about this a lot at the company over the holidays I think the sort of as I've gotten older and perhaps as of being a parent, that there is so much more sort of joy in life in being the giver as opposed to the taker. Mm-hmm. And the more that you can incorporate the give is going to bring you so much jo- more joy than thinking about what you can get. And this is true in operating on a, at a team. This is true of being a company. This is true in a whole myriad of different ways. But the idea is thinking about whether it's as simple as giving someone a compliment that you should be thinking about that your place in the world is to make it better for somebody else, which in turn will make it better for you. So if you see an opportunity where somebody looks like they're having a bad day, or even if somebody that's just walking down the street, you say, you know what, I just want to let you know that scarf looks great on you. It costs you nothing. And it's just a tremendous opportunity to give something to somebody else, which I promise gives you back in spades about a hundred times what it took you to give it. I love that. Thank you so much. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Very well stated and such beautiful advice. So thank you, Liz. You are Uh, very welcome. And thank you so much for including me. You are one of the favorite people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And so really to be a part of this and, and you're sort of 
venture out into the world was really something that was was an honor for me. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us here. As you heard in this last episode, I worked with Liz for many years in advertising. My new venture that she's referencing is, of course, that of a life coach. In this last year, I got certified, and I now get to work with women who are looking to make some sort of transformation in their own lives. Clients generally come to me when they are bored or burnt out in their current career, when they've had a change in their life that makes them reevaluate and reconsider how things fit together, and oftentimes they're looking to really rediscover what brings them joy. So if that tugs at your heartstrings, I invite you to go over to jumpstartyourjoy.com and click on the coaching tab at the top of the screen. From there, you can fill out form at the bottom of that page and I'll be in touch. Next week on episode 22, I have an interview with Josh Davis. He's a TV producer who has worked on shows such as What Would You Do and The Today Show. And we talk about dreaming big and working hard to make those dreams a reality. I think you'll really love his outlook and his sense of humor. So I hope you'll come on back and catch that interview next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy. 